mean, can you imagine going to a dentist and one week the dentist knows what to do and the next week you walk in and he says, geez, I don't know about this drill, <laughs> right? I don't know any musicians who have hit or miss technique, dancers, architects, but I know a lot of actors who don't know what they're doing. They either find it or they don't find it, but they don't have a reliable approach unless they've been in the business a long time for how to turn every script they get into behavior. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. 10,000 No's is a roadmap built by guests who have blazed trails, silenced critics, and overcome the odds by facing down their fears and transforming their failures into fuel. I don't care if you're young or old, healthy or sick, there is always an opportunity for growth. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 No's, and thank you, as always, for being here. If you were with us a few weeks ago for my solo episode titled, You Never Know Who's Listening, you heard me mention today's guest. I was extremely honored when, out of the blue... Someone from Terry Knickerbocker's studio in Brooklyn reached out to tell me that Terry, who you will come to find out in the next hour, is kind of a big deal in my industry, has been a big fan of 10,000 No's. The fact that I've created a show that's inspiring the very kind of people who inspire me really fires me up. The fact that I was already headed to Brooklyn for the show I'm currently working on the week after they reached out was what we call serendipity. I got to visit the studio, meet Terry's staff, and sit down face-to-face with Terry for this incredible conversation that I'm honored to bring you today. For those of you not familiar with Terry, here's a brief snapshot. For the past 20 years, Academy Award winner Sam Rockwell has insisted on working with acting coach Terry Knickerbocker to prepare for every one of his roles. An actor himself, prior to teaching, Terry studied at the Experimental Theater Wing at NYU before seeking out the late William Esper. Falling in love with the manner in which Esper worked after taking his two-year program, Terry began a 25-year stint teaching at the William Esper studio until 2015 when he ventured out on his own to open the Terry Knickerbocker studio. In addition to running his studio, Terry is highly sought after for private coaching with such respected thespians as John Leguziamo, Emmy Rossum, Natasha Leone, Rockwell, and Chris Messina, among others. So while it was a huge surprise to me that Terry is a fan of 10,000 No's, once I got over the initial shock, it made sense. He, like me, is obsessed with process. He is obsessed with the potential in human beings, whether they turn out to be future Oscar winners or someone looking to hone their craft to the best of their own particular ability. I feel lucky to have sat down with him to discuss the craft and the long and winding road to being considered one of the best of the best in his field. Here he is, Terry Knickerbocker. The definition is that you're an acting teacher, you're an acting coach, but if I were an alien coming down from outer space, how would you describe what it is that you do? That's so interesting because in the Meisner training on the first day of class, we ask if a Martian were to come here and you know you met each other and they don't know what acting is, how would you describe that? And so we start to try to come to an organic definition of acting that ultimately I steer them towards 
Meisner's definition of acting, which is doing truthfully under imaginary circumstances. So I think uh, I help people to learn how to uh, act so that they can tell stories in rich ways um, that are truthful, authentic, meaningful, full of their imagination, uh, honor that playwright, but also honor them as artists. And then in the coaching part, because I'm not really teaching them how to act most of the time, I'm just helping them to come in loaded, you know, in the best way possible to know what to do, to know what to do. I think that's in both cases, in the teaching and in the coaching, it's like it's so good to walk on set and feel like you know what you're doing. Yeah. So when the director says act, so that in a way you're director-proof. Um, so I, I know, I, I know what director-proof is, but explain that to an audience who may not know what you're talking about yeah. when you say director-proof. I, director I proof. think the alien is still a bit confused. Um, <laughs> we enact stories either live, which is so great, to do theater, uh, or on camera for film and television, and actors play characters who are not themselves usually. There's always a director. That person is responsible for making sure the whole enterprise comes together, lights, set, camera, editing, all that kind of stuff. And most directors don't have the language skills or understanding or knowledge to speak to an actor. So they're going to talk to an actor typically in result-oriented language. Um, is there a version of this where you could like raise your voice or could you do it more like Johnny Depp or I mean like just the most idiotic possible things and actors have to be diplomatic because we all want the same thing hopefully which is for the project to be as good as it can be. But you're thinking to yourself, this guy's a, can I swear, an, a fucking idiot, yeah. right? You know, I mean, he's just, what the fuck does he know? Yeah. Can I do it like Johnny Depp? Hire fucking Johnny Depp. Right. Right? <laughs> Is there a, a version of this where I can yell? Can you get louder? Is there a version of this where you can be like, more like a kangaroo? I mean, like the most insane things directors say to you. And of course, there are exceptions to that historically, like Ilya Kazan was an amazing actor's director. But for the most part... Directors are happy when you can do it, and they, you know, they give you notes, and then you have to, as an actor, translate that into something that's actable, which comes out of your vocabulary. So the director-proof thing, because if you walk in with an idea, and it's, you know, hopefully the director's pleased with it, or a couple of ideas, then they don't have to worry about you, right? They have to have a better idea. It's the worst thing is when you walk in not knowing what you're doing. Then the director's going to go, and then they're going to start messing with you, and that's a nightmare. Because there's no, you know, time is money. There's no time on a set for learning. Yeah. You've got to walk in knowing what you're doing. Which is one of the things in, in uh, hearing an interview that I heard with you, you talk about, you know, being loaded with ideas, and you talk a lot about preparation, taking care of your instrument. Mm -hmm. um, Isn't that funny how we call it the instrument, but that's what we call it? You know? Yeah. You know, like a, like a tuba. Well, well what a, yeah, no, but, it, but it really is. But it's is. true. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And uh, it's all-encompassing. You know, I, um, I was a smoker. I'm interrupting you. I, I, I was a smoker for a long time because it was cool to smoke. And um, 
everybody smoked. And I got to NYU to train, and my acting teacher, Terry Hayden, who's still alive, I think, in her 90s, extraordinary lady who worked with Lee Strasberg, said, are you smokers here? And I reluctantly put my hand up, and she said, what are you doing? You're killing your instrument. That would be like taking a Stradivarius violin and like a screw and like scratching on the surface. What's the matter with you? This is your instrument. And man, that was a wake-up call, and I quit the next day. Yeah. Because we have to, we're not civilians. Yeah. Well, that's, you know? I, I'll tell young actors, you know, they, they won't talk about warming up. And I said, did you play sports? I said, yeah. I said, did you just show up yeah. to the field and just get on the field and yeah. play? Yeah. No. What'd you do? You know, calisthenics, stretch. we yeah. stretch. Yeah. We get, you know, you get your mindset right. Yeah. And, yeah. and yet people don't really, some people don't think of it when yeah. it comes to, they think just, just go. Yeah. Um, but what I was going to say was I, I'm, I'm, as I listened to you in this, this other interview, and I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes to this other interview because it was great. And you got into Meisner and we'll cover some of these topics and probably yeah. not cover some of them. Um, but, but what I was struck with was the, your approach to acting is so in line with so many other guests hmm. of 10,000 knows who are in all different fields. Tell me about that. Just in terms of preparation, attitude, yeah. uh, service. Yeah, I was you, listening to the guy, the guy who was in jail for seven years, who's oh, a CrossFit yeah. guy. Rob Groupie, yeah. I'm getting chills just thinking of him because uh, I was there like, yup, 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 yup. Talk about overcoming yeah. stuff. Yeah, it's a great reminder yeah. to sit down with wow. all these folks and, and there are other ones. Um, where people have overcome these insurmountable odds and and that's for the mindset and reframing something yep. and then there's also w where I thought with you they, really it's a crossover with probably every one of these high achieving guests is it's it's the the preparation and and setting yourself up for success you know yes. and and that was a question that that I had was you work with actors of all different stages of their career, yeah, including the pinnacle, including yeah. the pinnacle of our business, yeah. yeah, Sam, as we were talking about before we sat down. Um, but that's Sam, Sam Rockwell. Rockwell. Yes. Um, and what is it, though, that that you? How how do you convey that message to? A young actor who's coming in and they're they're saying, "Oh, I, I want I want all of these things." But where do you start? What's the the yeah. beginning point for you? So, um, we do all our classes here by interview. Um, some studios, you you know, come in and audition. There's a lot of different ways to study acting, especially in New York. There's probably more acting schools here than any place in the world. Um, but, you know, you can you can be coached within an inch of your life and do a monologue that, you know, everyone's got you, and then you don't really know anything about the person. And so the first thing I ask anybody I work with or meet who wants to work is, what are your goals? Um, because I think having a North Star is very important. And... 90% of the time, what people will say is, I want to be a working actor. And my heart sinks when I hear that. 
it means they don't want to be a barista. They just want to make a living. And I like, I had a student in my class who didn't know what the hell she was doing, but she made a lot of money because she was a stand-in on Law & Order five days a week. So she bought a penthouse. She had all, she was a working actor, except she's right. not acting. Right. Um, so I, I tell them in as gentle a way, but a direct way as possible, I wonder if we could find a more interesting goal. Um, and it takes a long time. Then I say, well, I want to win awards. I say, well, you know, Jeff Bridges didn't win, you know, an award till 40-something years into his career. Does that mean he wasn't a good actor until he got the award? That's some, that's marketing. Do you know, yeah. when, when Sammy did Moon, uh, that was one of the best films ever, I thought. And Sony, I think that was the distributor, decided that they didn't think it was going to have the, the legs, and so they didn't pay for screeners. So he didn't get nominated, yeah. not because he wasn't good, but because they didn't have the publicity machine going full stop, which is how these awards work, is actually a lot about publicity and stuff. So I try to get them to, I want to be the best actor I can be. That's the North Star that interests me. I don't want to be better than Clint Eastwood or, or Meryl Streep. I want to be the best. There's no competition. There's only one me. I want to be the best actor I can be. If you have a little girl who loves tennis and, you, and, her, and her hero is Serena Williams and you ask her, what does she want to do? She wants to play Wimbledon. And she knows that to play Wimbledon, she has to be the best tennis player she can be. And then her family makes decisions like, okay, well, we're not going to do that in Idaho. We got to move to Florida. That's where the coaches are. So I want to be the best actor I can be so that I can play leading roles in projects I care about. Now, that may be a 20-year goal or more, but that's my goal. Then you reverse engineer that and you say, okay, if that's your goal and you mean it and you mean it, because lots of people say they want shit and they don't do it. Dreams without action don't equal anything, right? It's just a list. It's just a to-do list. It's not on your calendar. So I say, if that's what you want, then where does training fit into that, right? And then people will say, oh, you know, well, because I run a conservatory. So I, I teach acting here, but I also know that in any MFA program here or in London or anywhere else, you want to be a good actor, you have to work on your voice, you have to work on your body, and I'm not even talking about other stuff you need to work on, but at least that. And I offer that, and they go, well, I'd just like to do the acting. I said, do you know about The Sopranos, speaking of you, right? <laughs> so for seven years, those guys had a great career, and how many of them are working now because they sound like they're from New Jersey? Because they were great on that show, but they're not going to work on Fargo. Only Gandolfini and Edie Falco and a few select others in the main you know, uh, Imperioli and a few others are like out there doing it. And the rest aren't doing it anymore. They're getting royalties, but they aren't doing it anymore. So if you need to do that, you need to work on your voice, you need to work on your body, and you need to work your fucking ass off because, and we train actors in two years. That to me is extraordinary because there's no one who plays the violin who can do that in two years or ballet. But because innately as human beings, we're storytellers already from the beginning and we see and know how to mimic stuff if we have that interest, getting the skills can actually be given in two years. Then it takes 20 years to 10,000 hours to like start to master it. So people say to me, well, I don't want to take movement. I can't afford it. And then they're like, fucking Airbnb your couch, man. <laughs> yeah. What do you want to do? What's your goal? There's sacrifice involved here. And so it's in the conversation that 
people self-select, that they see that I'm all in and most really good actors are obsessed and you can't be a dabbler, you can't be a dilettante, you know, and you have to know why you want to do it and really love it, you know, and if you do, you're going to do it. And even then, and they come and study here and I'm not cheap, I'm not the most expensive, but it's not cheap here. Yeah. You still see people who are very self-sabotaging. You know, they just don't, they don't rise up. Talk about that, the self-sabotage. What do you think, what do you see as the, um, the, the big barrier for a lot of, if you, if you had to pick one thing that was fear. kind of fear. Fear. Fear, a conditioned fear, a habitual fear, a fear that's been in them forever, maybe that they learned from their parents, you know, and, and, um. Fear to, to fear, I would say more fear of success in some level than fear of failure. You know, what would it be like if I actually became the very best version of myself? That's not easy. Yeah, it's a lot of responsibility. A huge amount of responsibility and a huge amount of work. Yeah. You know. Th- that's a common theme when I'm talking about other guests. You know, I, I think of the entrepreneurs that taught you, you know, you see them flying around and, and private jets and everybody says I want to do that you know hashtag entrepreneur life yeah, whatever it might yeah, be and then yeah. when you actually sit down with these men and women who do this the the answer is always first of all the story is always 30 years long to yeah. get to where they were and and the what they actually do to achieve that is is incredible sacrifice incredible focus and work yeah. ethic and it's yeah. it really applies um, tell me a little bit about your own journey. I mean, I know you were with the experimental theater at NYU, but yeah. I mean, even, even further back, did you know at a young age that you wanted to be an actor, a storyteller, somehow involved in this, or, or was this kind of a complete left turn that got you here? What, what, where, where'd you grow up? You know, I grew up the... in Brooklyn Heights okay. uh, until I was seven. Uh, both my parents are attorneys. My dad's deceased, but uh, in 2010. But my mom just turned 91. She's still living in Brooklyn. Uh, then we moved to Massachusetts, and my parents were so good at—I'm uh, getting a little choked up—at exposing me and my sister. I have a younger sister to culture, so we'd go to the theater. My dad took me to the symphony. Um, we'd go to museums. Um, I was listening to Gilbert and Sullivan, operettas, Pirates of Penzance, and HMS Pinafore, which I loved. I loved that stuff. It's weird stuff my dad loved. And he was sort of an old-fashioned Republican. My mom was a Democrat uh, from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, in Syracuse, New York. So. We do all this weird stuff, and I love to do it. And my dad carried around a picture of me at the age of four in his wallet, like dressed up as like Joseph from the Bible, you know, with like a beard, fake beard and stuff like that. So something was going on. And I know I was in some plays in middle school and in summer camp. There was like a drama thing. I never thought I'd do it. I just enjoyed it. I also really liked French. And so, and I was a total underachiever. I mean, I was like, really? yeah, I was, 
every report card until my junior year of high school was saying, uh, Terry has lots of potential, but uh, he needs to apply himself. And I was very sad. I was, I was a very depressed and anxious kid. And um, I don't think I had a very happy childhood at all. Um, Where do you think that came from, just in, in your in your chemical makeup, or there was? Uh, I mean, and we don't have to. I don't have to delve into your childhood, but it's just. A, I don't know. I mean, because I feel pretty happy now yeah. and very fulfilled, and I'm so blessed with uh, a wonderful job that I love to do every day, and a wonderful family and great people around me. But um, I was lonely. Um, I think my dad was kind of sad and, um, and, uh, so without getting into a lot of family stuff, cause they're, these people are still with us. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll just say it was environment plus maybe some chemical makeup, but a lot of environment, um, and confusion. And so, um, I did West Side Story in, uh, high school. Uh, and that, and I really wanted the part of uh, action. He's the guy who's just cool, cool. My son just played, just did Tony that, in West Side Story. Amazing, yeah. Right? yeah. And I, so I've seen it now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I wanted that. It was between me and this guy Andrew Friedman. I went to a boarding school in, in Providence, Rhode Island, called Moses Brown, and um, and it was between me and Andrew Friedman. He said, "Mrs. Gunyon, the the drama. This is 1972." said, um, okay, let me see you both walk across the stage, and based on that, I will decide. <laughs> so he walked and I walked, and he got the fucking part <laughs> because of his walk, you know? And I got the booby prize, which was the part of Big Deal, appropriately named. <laughs> Big Deal was one of the Jets. Like, action was Tony's right-hand man, right? And he got his own song. Big Deal got one verse in the, in the song called Dear Officer Krupke. But because I could sing, the audience here is laughing, right? Oh we have some God. students here. Um, because I was a good singer, I was also backing up and singing harmony on, like, Tony's songs backstage. But, you know, it was so cool to grease your hair back and all that. And then um, I had no interest in... I was high all the time. I mean, I was just... Really? Starting from what age? Like? Oh, man. Um, ninth grade. Yeah. Yeah. Just drugs. I mean, that was huge. It was the anti-war movement and all this kind of stuff going on. And just... I wasn't really that interested in school for the most part. Um, and then uh, my dad got me into BU because I didn't even send in applications. I'd say, I'll send in the application. I didn't send in the applications. And... He taught at BU, and uh, so he pulled some strings, and I got in as a French major because I spoke French pretty well and took AP French. And I did not go to a single class. I, I went to the first class of each one of my classes and bought the books and lived in a dorm, and my parents lived in Cambridge, and I was in Boston. That was weird. And the first week, I saw an audition notice for this operetta called the Grand Duchess of Gerolstein, right, written by Offenbach, um, who was sort of a contemporary of Gilbert and Sullivan's. And I went, oh, that sounds cool. Need a chorus. So I went in, I auditioned, and I got into that and ultimately became the president of the Boston University Savoyards, which was a really niche group 
devoted to Gilbert and Sullivan and occasionally other operettas, but I never went to class. And there wasn't online stuff then, so my parents would go, how are, cl- how are classes going? Oh, classes are going great. And then I'd, like, rush home to see if I could intercept the letters from Boston University saying, you know, your yeah. son has incompletes and all that. And finally, at the end of my first year there, they figured that out, and BU said, hit the road. And I got a job, and I started acting in everything amateur I could do in Boston and Cambridge, which was shows at Harvard, shows at BU, some dinner theater stuff, yeah. lots of musicals. And then I did my first straight play, which was Ionesco's Macbeth, which is his take on the Scottish play. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I kept getting these parts. They kept giving me these parts. And I went, hmm... I think I've reached a plateau here. I need to train. And I applied to NYU, took the train down. It was the only place I applied to. Got in. And everything changed after that. That was like full-on training. And I was at Circle in the Square for for the first two years, which was a studio there. It's not anymore, which is where I met Terry Hayden. Nico Sakharopoulos, who founded Williamstown, was my teacher. And started Link Letter Voice and like... We did jazz dancing. I mean, it was weird stuff, but I was also interested in this experimental stuff, so I I transferred over. So I think the bug, that's such a long answer to your question, but the bug was early on through being exposed to it, but it really didn't catch fire till like high school and after. Well, what I love about that answer, especially as a parent, and especially as a parent in today's society where everybody's kids have to be, you know, number one right now. Yeah. What I love about that story is that, you, you, you know, it, it's not it's not like it has to be deemed. You don't need to find that thing when you're six no, necessarily. No. And maybe you did find it in some way, as yeah. you're saying. But the fact that it didn't really crystallize for you until you were almost 20. Yeah. You know, is it, it should give hope to parents that are listening, certainly, that you yeah. don't have to micromanage every single thing that your kid but does. But aren't you tempted? Yeah. I mean, my kid just started, I have a five-year-old and we were talking about your kids and, you know, I, I just want him to be happy, right? Yeah. But when I see him liking something, like he's really liking drawing now and coloring and stuff like that, and he's pretty good, which I have no talent for. I have to hold myself back from going, so do you want to be an artist? You know, like, because it's Absolutely. too early. Right? No, but I mean, I, I'm telling you, you know, my son just did the West Side Story. Both yeah. my kids, my son and my daughter just started doing just community theater yeah. last year. And they both really like it. Yeah. And I think they both have some aptitude. But, but you know, my, my feeling is expose them to everything. Yeah. If they're interested in it. Give them opportunities yeah, yeah, to keep yeah, going, yeah. but but do everything you can not to be yeah. overbearing. And sometimes Stage I succeed at that, and sometimes I don't. Yeah. But but I love hearing that story. That here you are with all that you've accomplished, and then to hear that you're saying you know you were junior year of high school was until then is was yeah. when you were an underachiever, and Wait, then you were, yeah. you know, and then even beyond that, yeah. you go and you. I don't know if I would call it failed out or lacked attendance out of BU. I, I failed. Know? I failed out. Yeah. By, by not going to but, class. But by not going to class. Yeah. So so go on. Sorry. So you found the experimental theater yeah. at NYU, and yeah. what happened for you there? Oh man, well, I just felt. I found. There? I what? found a home, and I what my mind got blown 
by the idea of what is theater. That just got exploded, uh, primarily through a teacher named Anne Bogard, who a lot of people may know as the head of what's called the CT Company, S-I-T-I, which is an experimental company that's been around for many years here in New York, and she's also the head of directing at Columbia University in their grad program. But she was my teacher, one of my teachers at NYU Experimental Theater Wing, and we were. she had the idea that theater for her always felt like a journey. And so we started to do a lot of site-specific theater and taking the audience on journeys. Like there'd be these, we'd be in Washington Square Park doing scenes and then there'd be a guide bringing the audience through and then they'd stop for a while and watch us doing something and then they'd go on to something else where there was another scene in like someone's basement in the East Village. And we did theater in abandoned high schools and just like... We did theater on the steps at NYU and um, so-called sort of invisible theater or just alternative street theater stuff and just what is it and how do you, in a very kind of postmodern approach to making theater that um, was so rich and it was just, we just felt like we could change the world. And what are some lessons that you learned from that? Because I think there's a certain amount of risk involved with that that's that when you're doing you know a play on a stage and people are paying to come into the theater that's one thing it's in a vacuum but what you're talking about it's doing it out there in public i mean did you learn something sometimes in public sometimes in a basement that only people who knew about right. it were coming to and they were looking through the windows i mean and they paid they paid some money well but that's not yeah. what I, yeah. I mean what i mean is did you did you learn something about uh, risk yes. in a performance. Yeah, man, that is scary. Yeah. To have people coming and looking at you, you know, the public. When you're doing theater on the street, that's scary. Um, and that's cool. I like risk. I think risk is, I think, to connect your guests in this 10,000 Knows podcast, that the ability to run towards risk, safe and healthy risk, to go to your edge, seems to be a theme. Um, I learned about community. I learned what a, I mean, I, that was always the best thing about plays. It was rehearsing and, and forming a family. And, and we, feel, we felt even more like a community in this underground experimental theater wing, it felt like to us. And the reason I went there was because at Circle in the Square, which had some great classes, great teachers, great students, but I would notice because we were, we were taking class at Midtown, in, you know, like where the Circle and Square Theater is now, near the Gershwin Theater, and people would come to class, and the teacher would say, "Who wants to work today?" And people would be like all dressed up for an audition, and they'd go, "Oh, I'd like to work, but I might rip my pantyhose or whatever." And I was there, something just like that to me was like nails on a chalkboard. I was like, "Folks, we're here to train. Yeah. Why are you worried about your career right now when you're in college and you have this beautiful sacred gift?" of a shelter and a dojo to train. And it just was a very mixed set of priorities. And, and then when I got to ETW, Experimental Theater Wing, it's like just an empty space, people in sweatpants, no bullshit. We're just going to get down and dirty. And that just felt like that's home to me. The work, the dojo, that's what I like. Rocky back in the old gym. Yeah, 100%. That's yeah, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all But about not training for a fight. Just training, knowing that the more we train, the more work we're going to be able to do. 
when we want to do it. Yeah. And so, so tell, the, uh, you have a great story of um, how you came to meet William Esper. Yeah. Um, my condolences, by the way. Thank you. That's well, we've all recent. lost someone pretty astounding who has, had been for over 50 years a pillar in actor training. And um, he lives inside me for sure. So I had a teacher at NYU named Rina Yerushalmi. She was an Israeli woman great director. She went to Carnegie Mellon. Incredible. And um, she, in our last couple weeks of senior year at NYU, just said, well, let's try a little bit of this repetition exercise, which I knew nothing about. No one in New York, I can't say no one, but back then, New York theater training, Lee Strasberg was still alive, Stella Adler was still alive, Uta Hagen was still alive. Those were the big three. Right. Then a guy named Eric Morris, a few other people, um, Paul Sills, who was teaching like the Viola Spolin work. But I never heard of the Neighborhood Playhouse. I never heard of it. And certain people had heard of it because like Steve, Steve for, McQueen and yeah. Duval, I'd never heard of it, huh. you know. And so I didn't know anything about Meisner. I didn't know anything about that. I thought the, these were the big ones. So she told me about the repetition exercise and we did a little of it. And she was dating a, a, a guy named Joel Rooks. Um, who studied with Bill Esper and had just started to teach with Bill Esper, was a working actor, still a working actor, wonderful actor. Um, and then I was working backstage at La Mama on a show she directed that Joel was the star of called uh, Yosla Golem, the Golem legend at La Mama, which is a great uh, Lower East Side, yeah. um, wonderful off-off Broadway theater where great work got done. And so I saw Joel every night do this lead role magnificently like an Olympic gymnast, just sticking it, like character, emotion, precision. I was like, and right around that time, I was, she had a, a, a school, a, a class for us outside of NYU where we did scene study. So one week I did a scene from Bertolt Brecht's Ball and it was great. Then I did a scene from Summer in Smoke, Tennessee Williams, it was great. Then I did a scene from Morning Becomes Electra by uh, Eugene O'Neill, and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. My brain knew what it needed, but I didn't have a roadmap. And in fact, it turned out that NYU had given me a lot of great experiences, but hadn't given me a toolkit um, because the, the, the methodology there was scene study, which makes no sense to me. But that's how most actors learn is you do scenes and you do more scenes and we did some technique, but none of that technique made sense to me. So the confluence of seeing Joel do this and being terrified that I didn't know what I was doing, even though I knew the week before. I mean, can you imagine going to a dentist and one week the dentist knows what to do and the next week you walk in and he says, geez, I don't know about this drill. <laughs> Right? I don't know any musicians who have hit or miss technique, dancers, architects, but I know a lot of actors who don't know what they're doing. They either find it or they don't find it, but they don't have a reliable approach unless they've been in the business a long time for how to turn every script they get into behavior. And so I went, I want to do what Joel's doing. And he studied with Bill and I went and met with Bill. I was signed up to do, I was cast in two plays in the fall. I went to see him in the summer. I was going to do a play with Rena, and I was going to do a play with Ann Bogart. And I was just going to, hey, I'd like to get this. Bill said, that's great. You can come into my class. 
I don't actually have any room in my class, so you're going to have to be an alternate, which meant I'd have to watch him and then train with someone else who happened to be Maggie Flanagan, who is an astounding teacher, but was just starting out there. And I said, okay, yeah, and I got these plays, so I may have to miss some classes. He went, what? Oh, no, what are these plays? I went, well, is it going to be off, off Broadway? He said, I don't want you to do those plays. I got so pissed. I didn't tell him I was pissed, but I was just like, who goes to an acting class to not do a project? Like, I'm just here to, like, get in tune. He said, no, 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 we're starting from the beginning. Everyone who does this work starts from the beginning. I don't care if you went to Yale or NYU or you're a plumber. We all start at the beginning because I don't know where the holes are. And we're going to work on winning races by crawling. And if you go from my class to rehearsal with some director, going back to the director proof, who's going to give you some bullshit or uh, result-oriented direction, none of this is going to stick. So I don't want you to do those projects. And I slept on it, and I thought, okay. And I quit them both and haven't looked back because that training was the most extraordinary two years of my life. You know, it was just rich and imaginative, and he was a masterful teacher, and Maggie was a masterful teacher, and I had the benefit of both of them. Um, and talk about rigor, because you're supposed to usually just do one exercise a class, but uh, there are only a couple of us alternates. So Maggie said, I'm not going to come here just to do one exercise. Why don't you have two ready? So I'd have two ready, and then I'd always have another one ready in case watch Bill's class in case someone was absent. So I was like, it was like going to the gym like Michael Phelps, you know, three times a day. Yeah. And that was great. Yeah. And so when you came out of that two-year program, were you, had, had the teaching bug no. come yet? Or I had always thought stuff? about teaching, but I thought, oh, no. I could never teach because that, I've had bad teachers and mean teachers and... Um, it felt like such a sacred responsibility. I could not imagine having someone put themselves in my hands and being responsible for that and not like China, not, not want to break it. So I had an interest, but I thought I, I could never do that. What, what, how did you connect the dots yeah. going from that yeah. to now? So I was all in to be an actor. I actually left um, Rob Nepper, who's a wonderful working actor, was in my class and He'd been given a job in a, in a show that Nancy Simon, Neil Simon's daughter, was directing up in Vermont. And then he dropped out and recommended me. So I like went right from school into work, which is like great. And I was just like, great, work an actor, I'm going to do that. And then um, the woman who became my first wife, uh, Jessica Litwak, is a wonderful writer and performer and friend of Ann Bogart's got this chance to do a play that Ann had directed. Then Ann got another job and he said, well, would you like to direct it? And I went, um, okay. I mean, I, and that actually fit because whenever I was acting in projects, I always wanted to kind of mess with everybody else's stuff, which is a no, no. I'd always have ideas about their costumes and their moments, which I mostly keep to myself, but it was a bit of a torture. Yeah. So to be a director was like, oh, now I get to be like the mad scientist and in charge of everything. And so I did it just to help Jessica out, but I won an award. I applied and won this grant from the Drama League of New York for Emerging Directors, which 
like was a fellowship for the next six months and I got to assist at Arena Stage and at Ensemble Studio Theater and then do my own project, which Bob Moss, who founded Playwrights Horizons, was my mentor for that. And um, I was like, oh, okay, I'm directing now. And then I like really, I was like, oh, I don't need to act anymore. I like directing. So I really wanted to be a director. And then I realized very quickly that directors can't make a living, stage directors. The only stage directors who make a living for the most part or if you have a show running on Broadway. So Joe Mantello, he's set, he's got Wicked, you know, Julie Taymor, she's got Lion King, but otherwise, and I didn't do musicals, so there was no way I was gonna make a living. So the way directors make livings is they either work for theaters, like as artistic directors or literary managers, or they directed soap operas, a lot of them did that, or they taught. Well, no one in New York needed anybody at their, I wrote The Public and Manhattan Theater Club and nobody wanted anything. So I said, okay, I'll try the soap opera thing. I had one day shadowing this director on Guiding Light, and I thought I was going to just vomit. It was just horrifying. I just, I couldn't do it. I just, my soul felt horrified at that. No disrespect, soap operas are great, direct TV's great. A lot of people working really hard doing great work there, but it just wasn't a good fit for me. And so teaching sort of became the default thing. And I went up to Bill, and I said, I want to teach the work, and... He said, well, I don't need any teachers because his way of learning how to teach was you observed him like an apprenticeship for like years, unpaid. Um, And I said, well, how would it be if I just came until you tell me to go? And that became a 32-year relationship that that finished in 2015. So I started with the teaching just to support directing, and at a certain point, I didn't need to direct anymore. I just love teaching. And what is it that you get out of teaching that you didn't get out of directing? The, the, to, to be able to follow someone's progress? or um... You know, the thing with directing is... I mean, what if... Ultimately, to be a really good director, you have to direct hit shows. You, you, it, it, something has to work. And so the commercial considerations and compromises and whether it's about casting or budget or whatever, it just isn't as pure to me as teaching. And so I love theater. I, I, I would say I love the possibility of theater when it really works. And I, I, I directed some shows that I'm very proud of. Um, and those were thrilling. But some of the other stuff just felt a little draining. Um, So there's something pure about teaching at its best where just people are there, like it's, you know, it's like going to a dojo. You're just there to learn this thing that is so beautiful to do and it's so hard to do. And the Meisner technique is such a beautiful uh, approach. It's just soup to nuts, so ingenious. The pedagogy of it is so perfect. Uh, it's a journey. It's clear. It's foundational. That's the main thing. Scene study doesn't work for me as a training methodology because it's like trying to learn Beethoven if you want to learn the piano. You have to learn scales. You have to. You can't do Swan Lake the first day of ballet class. But my first day at NYU, I was doing Streetcar Named Desire. Yeah. That's just really putting the cart before the horse. 
Um, so Explain to I, I would love to hear your explanation of the principles of, of Meisner's teachings and and even the repetition exercise, even so that that I, I feel like that work applies to Everything. non-actors. Sure. I, I actually think there oh, are yeah. there are ways in which it does. It goes beyond just the, the audience of actors listening. Yeah. But I'd, I'd love to hear yeah. your explanation. I don't know if we have enough time. Yeah, but, we, uh, yeah maybe I'll, it's... I'll, I'll just basically say that, um, just to use the scales me- metaphor, so you have to do a lot of scales if you want to be a musician, whatever the instrument. Um, major scales, minor scales, diminished scales... Um, seventh scales so that you start to develop a vocabulary and a facility in your muscle memory for doing that work and it sort of pre-solves problems like if you work on I don't know what eighth note arpeggios in a major seventh scale um, you do that so you don't have to think about it so when you have a piece of music that calls for that it's already available yeah so um, Meisner starts with this really simple exercise and it starts with listening and how many people can we say are really good, really deep listeners? Because that's a really important thing you need for acting. And it, and it starts with putting your attention on the other person. Because to listen, you can't have your attention on yourself. That's already setting you up for a lot of freedom. It sets you up for spontaneity. It sets you up to start to cultivate and be interested in and have the bravery to respond to what you're listening to. And it starts very simply. You know, I would say, you're wearing a ring. And you'd say back to me, I'm wearing a ring. And we'd go back and forth. You're wearing a ring. I'm wearing a ring. Because you're repeating back to me. So you don't have to think about the text. You just have to have your attention on me and I'm giving you the text. Yeah. And that will slowly but surely develop into something if you let it. You don't have to send it anywhere. It goes where it goes. And you'll start to have an experience and that's kind of cool because it's so organic. You're not making anything happen. It's just happening to you. So maybe after 20 times of saying, you have a ring, I'm there like, all right, you have a ring. And now I have genuine frustration. I didn't manufacture it. It happened organically. I'm like, oh, I can actually organize stuff to happen in me if I allow it to happen, if I'm in it, right? Yeah. Or I could say, I'm tired of talking about your ring, which means I'm just you know sharing with you my... My, my irritation and impatience, you know? And you say, you're tired of talking about my ring? Fuck you too. And now you're responding to me and we're going somewhere and it can go anywhere you want, you know, anywhere it takes you. And then we start to get into this idea of crafting, which is a, a fancy name for what actors do to arrange for behavior to happen when you need the behavior to happen. Because that's what we're makers, actors. Like dancers make dancers and painters make paintings. We make behavior. And we make behavior that honors the script. So the script is kind of code shorthand for saying the the writer sees behavior. And we just get it freeze-dried with the lines and maybe stage directions. And we have to turn that into, okay, well, who am I? Who's the character? What am I doing? What do I want? What are my relationships? What are the given circumstances? And how do I start to get that into my instrument, body, soul, so that it feels like it was written for me, like it's a custom-made suit, that it's as natural as just talking to you, except I'm not me, I'm somebody else. The work, Meisner defines the work as doing truthfully under imaginary circumstances. And 
that repetition work then gets into crafting where we start to work with objects and doing things and then the objects have meaning to us and we go, oh, I'm starting to come to life here. And then it expands into a whole toolkit that's like pages long. But the main thing is it has rigor in it. I think that's a thing that your guests all share in terms of this hard work is discipline and rigor because we, we work in every class. Class meets twice a week. You must rehearse with your partner outside of class. Uh, between every class, you have homework. You have to bring in something every class that you're going to work on. It's not just show up and let's see what happens. Yeah. So it makes you responsible, and it really puts into the body through practice, 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 this thing that the work eventually becomes inevitable. It's not easy. You just said something now so that it's not so that you just show up and say what happens. One of the things that Sam Rockwell has said about you is that you, in working with you, you have an, an endless amount of ideas and, yeah. and ideas that are not n- not on the nose. There are ideas that are inventive, ideas that, that, that fire him up, inspire him in some way. Yeah. Uh, could you talk about how you work with someone, whether it's Sam or another actor who is who is on a specific, you know, given a specific script, it's a private coaching situation. Yeah. Um, what What are some of the things that you do that that make you who you are? Uh, the kind of I don't know if I want to say your superpower, but but what it is that maybe defines you as as a coach. So my simple job as a coach, I think, I'll always listen and look at what they do first. Um, And then my job is to make it better. And there's certain qualities. I'm interested in quality. Just in life as a value, quality is very interesting to me, whether it's how well my Uber driver is driving or how is the chicken at the restaurant or how does the hotel clerk greet me or... Just what what is the quality? Like you go into some restaurants and go, hello, can I help you? And they're not interested. That's, that's going to lead to something dissonant as opposed to someone who's very present. So in my studio, it says our, our tagline is training the passionate actor committed to excellence. So I'm looking for how can we get an actor loaded up with an excellent performance? Um, and the, an excellent performance to me has to honor the writing. Like, it's not just about, well, if you're doing Stanley Kowalski in Streetcar, you can't just make him, I don't know what, like a, a weirdo librarian. That's just not, that's not listening to Tennessee Williams. But what's your idea around that? It, it's like, why did Philip Seymour Hoffman play Willie Loman on Broadway? Why would an actor want to do a part that's already been done by giants, Dustin Hoffman, um, Lee J. Cobb, you know, and, uh, and it wasn't for the money. Yeah. It was because he as an artist felt like he had something he wanted to say to that part that honored Arthur Miller, but also his ideas about the part. So this idea of imagination and ideas and your take on things is very important to me. It has to have some kind of an idea. Um, And I have, in all my training and a lot of work on, you know, I I told you I was an unhappy kid. Well, how come I'm happier now? Therapy. 
I mean, I think all actors need to go to therapy because you need to understand yourself. And that's where the storehouse is. And I've done, and I still do, therapy every week, individual and group. And it's, I, I want all my students to do it because how else are you going to know what to do, who you are? So one of the things that's led me to trust is my intuition. So stuff starts just flooding into me when I start to watch and listen to a, a piece of work. I mean, it's Sam just got this Clint Eastwood movie and he has to kind of, he had to turn around a yes, no on it and he's gonna do it um, about this guy, Richard Jewell, who was the security guard who found the bomb at the Atlantic Olympics and then was a hero. And then he got ultimately framed as the suspect and um, Sam's gonna play his lawyer. So I'm listening to him and going, oh, this feels like, and, and when you work with Sam, his, his vocabulary comes out of 70s movies, a lot of it, yeah. um, including The Godfather almost all the time, but also Dustin Hoffman. So I'm like, oh, this is like, this is like Richard Dreyfuss in Jaws or Dustin Hoffman in Kramer versus Kramer. Now, on the page, there's nothing there about that. But that kind of reference is a good door in for us to start to say, well, what, what, why is that? Why are we getting that vibe? Uh, well, it's because he's irreverent. This character is irreverent. He's a maverick. He's, uh, you know, and then that might lead us to, I don't know, someone like, I'm just thinking now, Abby Hoffman, who was a kind of a crazy anarchist. And um, uh, Alan Dershowitz uh, before he became a Trumper and stuff like that. So just I allow my associative thing to cook. I remember when Sam was working on Green Mile. This was a long time ago. and I lived in the East Village. And I was listening to this banjo player, Roscoe Holcomb, on the Smithsonian folkways thing. It's like Appalachian banjo player. And Sam had a line in Green Mile, which was, hey, fuck stick. And I just said, I don't know, let's just put this banjo music on and let's do some clogging in my kitchen. Because Sam loves to dance. Yeah. So we started dancing to the banjo music, this Appalachian bluegrass stuff, going, hey, fuck stick. Hey, fuck stick. And like that became a door into this really complex, tortured character. I, I'm sure Stephen King did not think of that, you know, and yeah. Frank Darabont or whatever. But so I just, uh, ideas are, are cool and we try them. And if they don't work, we throw them away. Yeah. Well, that's, I was you thinking know? when you said that you were directing and then you didn't, I, really, because I, I know, uh, a, l a little bit about you from friends that have worked with you. Uh, there is, I mean, you still are getting that directing. You, I mean, yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. a way, you yeah, are directing, directing without yeah. necessarily That's being true. there. Maybe sometimes you're there on the day, but even if you're you're prepping, yeah. you know, you are kind of directing in a way yes, as, as well. Together, um, collaboratively. To, collaboratively, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, so I, I kind of want to talk to you all day, but <laughs> this is fun, man. It's possible. Anything you want. Um, I just, what I'll, I'll wind it down, but, um, just, you know, to, to tie it into your other guys and, and the beautiful women and men you've interviewed, this idea of high achievement is really fascinating to me. You know, I love guys like Tim Ferriss and, you know, people who really, Seth Godin, people who are really 
dialing up to what makes high achievement. That's become my fascination since I opened the studio. I think I, I always had that, you know, but um, that's why I really enjoy your podcast and, and others like it. Um, and things I try to impart to my students, like, guys, it, it, there are so many actors out there. How are you going to score? You've got to be on it and you got to find your thing and you got to do it well and you got to grind. And um, I love working with Sam and, uh, and Emmy Rossum among many people that I work with, uh, because they're so completely all in. They're all in. And I, I think that's something that really excites me. Yeah. You know. Is that the factor? That's, I guess that's the, that was kind of my next question. I was going to say, what, do you notice that there's something different in the students you work with or the clients? I don't know what word you use, that are... Patients, they're my patients. No, your patients. No, they're not. That are that are really on top of the game. Is that the the defining factor? Is that commitment? In a, right. in a way, because what comes first is the love of the art form. Yeah, like you have to love acting. If you yeah. don't love telling stories, if you don't love transformation, if you don't love um, learning lines, it's going to be hard to be an actor. Because that's what sustains you is like, we get to tell these cool stories. Then the question is, okay, so what do I need to do it well? And then the all in is, it's a, it's a labor of love. It's joyful. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I'm going to give you the, the three questions that I've, I've ended with. Okay. Um, I really hate to end the conversation, but we'll, we'll, we'll continue. Is there anything you didn't ask me? I mean, there's so much. There's, there's, um, thank you for for offering that. Okay. I mean, one thing I'll think of that, uh, I, you know, yesterday in talking to our mutual friend, Chris Messina, who, um, I told you is like a, a brother to me and we've, we've been keeping, I think a live journal for 20 years of, of acting, you know, it's just been every time we're working and, and talking about, for example, Sam's way in, as you were saying, like maybe there's something external there that is his window in. And I think Chris and I tend to work almost maybe opposite of that, starting with Mm -hmm. something that's more, yeah. And we both studied with a a woman, uh, Kim Gillingham, who does a lot of Jungian work, dream 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 stuff, which is really fascinating to me. Um, And so, so it, it, like her, her question will be, you know, why did this script and this role hurtle through the universe and land in your lap right now? Yeah. What are you working on right now that you can learn from this yeah. character or this, yeah. this yeah. experience? So I, I don't even know if it's a question That's as much deep. as just a kind of a, a um, you know, cool. wondering your take on it, which is we all have different ways in. And I, I think for me personally, I'll find on, on some roles, it, it could be more outside yes. in. And on some roles, it's more inside out. And yes. uh, just, I guess, if, there, if there's a question in there wondering what your, your take on that is, I guess you said you go with whatever the actor's bringing you. And sure, you but also what the script awakens in me. Yeah. Um, and I certainly think that the most important thing is exactly what you're talking about, which is the meaning. If there's no meaning in it, it's just like empty calories. 
I, you don't want to do a job just to do a job. I mean, sometimes you have to take a job for money, but hopefully there's some, I mean, it's a body of work. You're leaving it forever. So it, it should have meaning and uh, it should have value. And um, so the heart of it, I think, is very important to me. And it breaks my heart. So cultivating empathy in actors is very important and having empathy for the character and not letting your ego get in the way of that because you're going to have resistance, you know. You read The, the War of Art and you yeah. know, press Stephen field. Press yeah, field. you know, yeah. like this resistance is going to come up because you're, you want to be the hero and you don't want to be the serial killer and you don't want to be the molester and you don't want to be like, you know, John Cazal in, in, in Godfather playing Fredo. You want, to, you want to be Sonny or you want to be, you know, Michael. You don't want to be Fredo because Fredo's a loser, but what a gorgeous actor uh. he is and what an amazing part. And so you have to stay true to what it's about and have the risk to go there. That feels like what it's mostly about to me. And then those external things will just give flavor to it or yeah. our associations, whether it's the, the, the banjo guy or... Or, or Richard Dreyfus or whatever, but ultimately, what story are we telling, and how do how do I locate? How do I have empathy? Like, if you're going to play Hitler, you cannot judge Hitler as a monster who killed six million Jews. You have to think, where did that? What was that kid's life like? Where did that go? You have to have empathy for him and love that character on a certain level, and and be that guy. Yeah. You know, otherwise, you're going. Look, I love Jews. He hated Jews, but I love Jews. I'm a good guy. I, I vote, right. you know. And that's going to separate you from the truth of the character. And so we're in the business of truth. That's all that matters. Telling the truth of it, it's not, it shouldn't be pretty. It shouldn't be ugly. It just needs to be truthful. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Yeah. You said your parents are both yeah. attorneys. Exactly. My, my dad uh, is an attorney. Yeah. And, and I have said, actually, on this podcast that I always thought I was going to be a lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it just kind of because I liked the way he spoke about yes, the law. And yes. what I've realized is that as an actor, I'm kind of doing the same thing. The way he spoke about when he used to litigate, he, he spoke about defending someone yes. is what we do. That's right. It's just not That's within right. the letter of the law. But That's you, right. my job is to yes. get inside, get under the skin of this person and defend their point of view to the world. Own it. And, and it's so... It, when I became an actor, it felt like a 180. And in retrospect, I look back and I think, oh, no, I'm kind of doing Makes sense. the thing that I liked when I was younger. Yeah. I think about it, it's just in a different context. Yeah. I want to say one more value that's extremely important is play. We, ha we have to make the, I mean, it's called a play. And so there has to be, even though we want to work hard and get it done, and there's millions of dollars riding on some of these projects, if we don't have a playful spirit in the making of it and on set, you're going to get tight. The imagination, you know, like new ideas aren't going to come in that kind of a tight space. And so we have to stay playful. That's, that's a great reminder. The, the job I'm working on here as they were wiring me a couple of weeks ago, she said, oh, you're, you know, you're so serious. And I said, oh, you should see me in this other yeah, 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 uh, yeah. comedy I just did. And she's like, oh, good. You're, you're, you know, you, you can be playful too. I said, yeah, but that's a great thing to think. Yeah. Am I being too serious? Yeah. Is there, is there something, is there more play that can be brought to it? Even if it's just, you know, on, on set. And, you know, I, I, I did. I told you, I just did this guest star in Mr. Robot and they were, 
the makeup person was coming to me between shots and I don't know, I just wanted to be playful. And I said, um, can I get a mole? And, you know, and she went like, what's the matter with you? you know? I was like, okay, you don't like to play. Okay. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, that, that's why actually one, one last thing before I give you that little series, you're going to, you're going to keep me here all day. I'm going to keep you here all day. Um, which is, uh, oh God, it just, it just flew out of my head as quickly as it came into my head. Oh, this will be edited out. This long pause. This is cool. What the hell was it? You just said something that acting. Oh, when I when I tell people that I you know will coach on something, some you know I, I've you know worked with someone for a role. Because you teach also. I teach yeah. not really. Is the teaching has morphed into the podcast? Okay. That, that was right. a whole can of worms. Right. I loved. Yeah. I loved, but. Uh, I Googled you, and all it of a sudden, was, there you are. Yeah, yeah. Showing no, no, this no, guy's I, takes. I, no, and I can't tell I can't tell a teacher like yourself that I teach. But I, I loved it, but I didn't. Yeah. It was, anyway, the, the thing that I'm amazed at, when I tell people that are outside of the business, that are just fans of movies or yeah. TV, that I've coached or that, you know, someone like Sam is going to a coach, someone like Chris is yeah. going to a coach, they yeah. go, really? Yeah. Some people are so shocked. Yeah. And yet, when I think of the people that I've had on this show, that is what, I mean, all of these entrepreneurs, their whole mantra is, you know, master classes, being around other entrepreneurs, 100%. people. I have a business coach for this studio. Right. She shook me up. Yeah. Hardcore. I mean, that, that, that should happen. And when I did this guest star, Sam coached me. Yeah. We were FaceTiming and he was taking me through the script. And then I hired this other lady, Katie Flayhive, who teaches for me. And she coached me because I want, I mean, I did my work, but I want to make sure it's good. Yeah. You know, there's no rehearsal in film and television. And even in a play, I think a coach is helpful because Serena Williams has a coach. Like, yeah. you know, uh, LeBron James has a strength coach and a conditioning coach every day. You know, yeah. I mean, we just, it takes a village. Sam works with um, a dialect coach. He works with a movement coach. He works with me. If he has to do authentic stuff like Kung Fu or whatever, he's going to do that. It's all research. So you walk in living that part yeah. the, the best you can be. Yeah. I mean, we need help. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. I'm leaving you now to go see my conditioning coach, you know, who helps me with like so I don't age too much. <laughs> well, then Stay I'm going to give you yeah. my, my last three. Okay. So the first one is uh, the word no means what to you? Um, opportunity. Opportunity. All right. If you have a, a go-to mantra, maybe yeah, you don't. Can I, just have, a that, can I mantra? have that question again? Cause yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to just think about it. The word no means to me... what else like no for now I guess that's opportunity like really what else yeah you know I don't yeah. think so it's not a closed door definitely not yeah time to pivot time to pivot I like that um do you have a go-to mantra when everything falls apart God is my supply God is my supply. 
it's gonna you know it, it's gonna work out I don't know how but it's gonna work out yeah we could do a whole other podcast on belief and spirituality yeah. I didn't even get to it yeah well, that's a big part think, of my morning routine yeah we'll have to yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, I'll be back next year um and then the, the last one is, if, if you could give your younger self advice, mm. at what age would you intervene? Mm -hmm. And what would the advice be? Mm. Age seven, put my arm around that kid's shoulder and say, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Terry Knickerbocker, first of Man, all, thank you for sitting thank down. Thank you for coming and, to Brooklyn. Yeah. To my studio. Your studio and, is and, awesome, um, by the way. So nice we did this because I've done a few other podcasts and it's just on the phone or FaceTime. This is the best. This it's is nice so to nice. See, like, yeah. yeah. I don't get to do it always. Yeah, but I this, really appreciate you making the time because I know how busy you are. And Well, I'm, I'm yeah, thinking the same about you. Yeah. And I'm, I was so flattered when I got the email that you yeah. actually uh, listened to the show. Ditto. I do uh, listen to the show. I love that first guest you had, the Gleason lady. She's... Oh, yeah. She's a great. great guest. You're Can a good guy, sir. Yeah. Thank I you. I hope we can work together. I hope so, too. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. All right. My top three takeaways. This is like Sophie's choice, but here goes. Feel free to write in and tell me your top takeaways because I will inevitably leave out so many by limiting it. Number one, do the work. Anyone who's taken an acting class with any teacher of substance has heard the phrase, do the work, over and over. And in sitting down with Terry, that was probably the biggest overall takeaway. From him, from his take on why someone like Sam Rockwell has reached the pinnacle of the acting world, an obsessive desire to get better, to roll up one's sleeves and dive into the meat of not only the craft of acting or whatever field one happens to be in, but also the difficult inner work, which is so easy to avoid. Do the work. In the long run, it'll get you farther than any parties you might attend or red carpets you may walk. Number two, fuck it. Pardon my French on this one, but I had to mention it. I was told by my buddy Chris Messina about this phrase, and when I heard it, it was credited to Sam Rockwell. But after talking to Terry, I realized that's where he got it. Either way, it's a valuable tool because if you're in any field that tells you no on a regular basis, it's easy to shift to anger and go into rooms with a chip on your shoulder. But it's not very effective to walk into a room thinking, fuck you, on the other hand, fuck it, is more of a release. It's a way of telling yourself, let's take the leap. We may fly or we may splat on the ground at the end of this audition, this sales pitch, this class that we're teaching, whatever. Either way, we need to let it rip. And number three, play. As serious as Terry takes the work, ultimately he said, it's called a play. You need to play. Great reminder for all of us that no matter how hard we work or how significant we feel the work that we're doing can be in the world or how serious the content of what we're doing may be, we need to find joy in it. Because if we forget the joy, we're going to shrivel up and the well of inspiration will be gone. You heard Terry say it in the beginning, and I totally agree. Really, all of the training is just getting us back to when we were innocent kids who could use our imaginations without limits. That's joy, and it comes from a sense of play.
All right, that is it. So much gratitude to Terry for inviting me to his studio and sharing such incredible stories with us. Thank you for listening. Here's the thing. We produce this with our own money and time, and we're not asking you for money, but if you feel like you've benefited from 10,000 no's, please do one thing. Share it with your friends so more people can be impacted, entertained, and helped by these incredible guests. If you can leave a review wherever you listen, that can help us be on the map even more. Uh, We sincerely appreciate it. And if you subscribe wherever you listen, you won't miss any episodes when they come out every Friday. If you like today's conversation with Terry, you will probably enjoy some of these past episodes. Their links will be in the show notes. Multi-hyphenate actor, writer, director, producer, Mark Duplass, actor, producer, Eric Christian Olson, or director, showrunner of Goliath on Amazon and Parenthood on NBC, Lawrence Trilling. Join us again next Friday for more 10,000 No's for announcements and promo videos of who's next. You can follow me on social media. Those handles are at Maddie Dell on Instagram, at Matthew Del Negro on Twitter and Facebook. And you can email us at info at 10,000nos.com if you want to be added to our mailing list or with questions, feedback, or guest suggestions. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.